0: Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, our Associate Care Pastor Joshua Masters will deliver a message about the true cost of following Jesus. You can follow along with the message in Luke fourteen twenty-five through thirty-five. You can also find our weekly message outline and many other resources on our website at BrookwoodChurch.org or on our Brookwood app. Well, good morning, Brookwood. Hey, my name is Josh Masters. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookwood Church, and I am so glad that you're here with us this morning. The worship team led us this morning in a great patriotic song, and then we started our worship set with the song Freedom. And during Independence Day week is the time that we spend reflecting on the cost of having the freedom that we do in this country. We think about the sacrifice and the Risk that our forefathers took to form this nation. More often than that, we think about the sacrifice that was made of the men and women who have given their lives fighting to defend the freedom of this country. Make no mistake, there is a cost for giving your life to a cause. And there's no greater cause. The greatest cause is that of God's kingdom. So what's it cost to follow Jesus, to live that life? That's what we're going to explore this morning. That's the question we're going to look at as we continue in our series on the life of Jesus today. And that we're in the book that David talked about. We're going to be looking at Luke 14, 25 through 35. And if you're using our book, that's reading 135, 135, on page 159. And I will be honest with you before we get started that this is a difficult passage. It's difficult for me. But even through God's conviction, his truth ultimately brings us freedom. But before we begin, let's ask God to to reveal to us what he wants us to know today. Ask him to remove the veil from our eyes that we're using to block that and just seek his grace in that. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for your glorious name. Lord, and as we look at this question of what it means to follow you, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us what it is you want us to know, that we would stop hiding behind the things that make us comfortable and the things that we want to look at, Lord, and that you would transform us, change our hearts, and I ask that you would start with me in the name of Christ. Amen. So, what is the cost of following Jesus? It's a hard question. So I'll ask the ushers to go ahead and block the door so no one can leave, and then we'll get started. No, I'm just kidding. Let's get to our text. We're at the top of page 159 in the Life of Jesus book. Now, this is a very structured teaching that we're about to see Jesus gives a lesson he gives an opening statement that's a lesson then he gives two clear illustrations and then he has a closing statement and he didn't even go to seminary but he, he was able to do that uh, so let's look uh, at the instruction first Luke 14 starting in verse 25 now great crowds were traveling with him so he turned and he said to them actually let's stop there you thought we were going to get further than that didn't you This is the kind of verse, this first section of the verse, is sometimes something that we breeze over when we're reading it on our own, isn't it? We just sort of skip over it. That's because it seems like a setup line and so we just sort of jump ahead to where Jesus starts talking. But everything, everything that's in scripture is important and it's there for a reason. And this verse is actually very important. This phrase is actually very important because it explains why Jesus is bringing up this topic of what it means to follow him. So why does he bring it up? Why is this teaching on the cost of following Jesus here? It's because of the people traveling with him. See, there were huge crowds, sometimes in the thousands, that have been watching every move that Jesus makes. People travel. They travel from village to village and from town to town so that they can see him. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows many of them will never truly accept him as Lord. These crowds amassed because they wanted to see miracles, or they wanted to get food, or they wanted to be healed. Most of the people that are traveling with Jesus are there out of curiosity or because they want something from him. But they're in danger. They're in danger of missing his invitation into the kingdom of God. And make no mistake, the reason it's recorded here is because many of us in this room are in danger of missing out. There were lots of people traveling with Jesus, but very few were following him. So, are you a traveler? or a follower. It's not enough to be on the fringes. It's not enough to be on the fringe of the crowd. So Jesus outlines what's truly required to be his disciple. That's what this teaching is about. We're going to look at three of them in your message outline this morning if you want to go ahead and take that out. Let's go back to our text. I'll read more than half a sentence this time. Verse 25, now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's a fun little passage, isn't it? The first point Christ makes here is that following Jesus requires undivided loyalty. Undivided loyalty, that's your first filling. Jesus is the only source of salvation. In the book of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. In chapter one of John, Teaches us that the entire universe was created through Jesus. Everything that has breath, he put breath into. He's responsible for everything that lives. So knowing that, is it reasonable for us to expect him to take second place in our lives? But Jesus takes the time to break down what that really means to have undivided loyalty. So verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty shocking. That's shocking, isn't it? It was probably even more shocking to the Jews that were there because honoring your parents was a foundational belief of their culture. It's one of the big 10, right? Honor your father and mother. Another aspect of Jewish culture was that your greatest joy came from your family. But choosing to follow Jesus at this time, that often meant being rejected and ostracized by the rest of your loved ones. It was a true sacrifice. Now, it's important to understand as we look at the English that Jesus is not actually saying that you should hate your family. That would be completely inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. What about Exodus 20, 12, or Ephesians 5 and 6, Titus 2? All of these passages speak to our need to love our family. And God is never inconsistent. God is never inconsistent. So what does it mean when you find something in the Bible that you think is inconsistent? What's it mean? I'm not Perry, but you still have to answer. You're misunderstanding. Oh, that's Perry. Hi, Perry. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for saving me on that. It was embarrassing. It means that there's something that you are misunderstanding. But that is awesome because it means that now you have the opportunity to experience something, have an experience with God as you explore that question with him. And he'll never say no to that question. He's okay with us asking the question why. And you'll grow closer to him as you try to find out what your misunderstanding is about the inconsistency. In this particular case, the term that's used here for hating your family is a Semitic or a cultural way of saying to prefer or to look like hate by comparison. So the love that I have for Christ should be so great That the love that I have for my family looks like hate by comparison. So in order to have undivided loyalty, you must love Jesus more than others. You must love Jesus more than others. Being a follower of Jesus means everyone else comes second to your relationship with him. Your friends, your co-workers, even your family. And that's difficult for some of us. That's difficult enough, but then Jesus adds to the end of that verse, anyone who does not hate his family, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus moves the expectation up a notch here, doesn't he? Part of having undivided loyalty in your faith means you must love Jesus more than yourself. And that might be the hardest part of this entire path. How often do we completely forget about self? Be honest. In what areas of your life do you truly put God first? Not give him a piece of it, but completely surrender it to him. And we just stumbled on the problem. It's that phrase... It's that phrase we like to use as Christians. What what area of your life have you not given to Christ? You can't give Jesus part of your life. You can't compartmentalize a relationship with Jesus. Oh, now, we'll always have things that we need to work on. There'll be healing that needs to happen. We'll all have spiritual growth that we need to attain. But the idea that you can give Jesus a piece of your life or an area of your life is fundamentally flawed. So what does it look like? What does it look like to hate yourself and love Christ? It looks like Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That means everything. Everything we do is filtered through the lens of Christ's lordship rather than our own desires. Every word spoken, every action taken, every thought captured is surrendered to the sovereignty of Jesus. What is it that keeps us from experiencing an intimate relationship with God? It's our refusal to give up control of our lives our refusal to stop pursuing what we think we want in exchange for what he knows we need. Look at First Peter 4, 1 and 2. So then, since Christ suffered physically, physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. See, turning towards God's will means turning away from your desires. And that leads us to the third thing addressed in this paragraph. You must love Jesus more than comfort. You must love Jesus more than comfort. Jesus closes his opening statement by saying, not only do you need to love me more than your family and yourself, but in verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bear your cross and follow him. Jesus has used that phrase multiple times in his ministry. It's not the first time we've come across it, is it? See, followers of Christ must be ready to voluntarily give up the things that make them comfortable, up to and including their physical life. The Christian life is not designed to be comfortable, it's designed as a preparation for eternity. We should expect discomfort in this world. There will be loneliness. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. There will be snares and traps set for you by the enemy. And if you find that there's none of that, there's no trials, there's no discomfort, and the enemy's not coming after you, you're in more danger than you think you are because it means your faith is not a threat to him. God calls us to be content, not comfortable. Because the things that make us comfortable in this life are usually stumbling blocks to eternity. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 19. I tell you the truth... It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, Heavenly speak, humanly speaking, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, most of us in this room may look at that verse and go, "Well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. I'm I'm not rich." Yeah, you are. You actually are. The truth is, we can't even fathom the comfort and the riches that we have in this nation because we're used to it. I complain all the time that uh, the window on my 11-year-old Saturn Ion rattles when I drive. It makes me crazy what that's discomfort that's what I call discomfort meanwhile somewhere else in this world there's a parent that's walking four miles to get dirty water hoping it keeps their kid alive and I'm concerned about the window on my car A while back, Forbes magazine and the New York Times actually reported that Americans in the bottom, the bottom 5% of earners, are richer than 68% of the rest of the world. Everyone in this room is rich. And Jesus said it's impossible for us to be saved except for the saving grace of God. Why is that? Because our comfort distracts us from Jesus. The reference to the cross very literally means being willing to give up your physical life for Christ. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Maybe not in the upstate of South Carolina, but according to one research center that a recent 10-year period, 900,000 Christians were killed for their faith. 900,000. That's 90,000 Christians a year. But our comfort here makes us blind to it. Undivided loyalty. You have to love Jesus more than your family, more than yourself, and even more than comfort. And I have failed at all of them. Let's be honest, this is... A difficult text today. Actually, you know what? Let's be brutally honest. This text is at the center of a whole host of scriptures and passages that we like to avoid as Christians. Passages like Revelation 3 where Jesus says, But since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I don't like that. Or the passage beginning with the verse at the top of your outline. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And you know what? I've never had anybody come up to me talking about that verse and saying, oh, oh, not everyone who calls out to the Lord enters the kingdom of heaven? That's my life verse. I love that verse. It's my fave. I like to put it I like to put it on on, on a picture of a waterfall and post it on Facebook. <laughs> but you know what? Maybe that should be our life verse. I'm gonna make someone mad right now, but maybe for now it's time to take down Jeremiah twenty nine eleven off from your mirror. and for a while put up not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven see we avoid these passages because they challenge our commitment to God but our commitment to God needs to be challenged but why do you think these passages are in the Bible these hard passages that we just went over why are they there? You think they're there to make you feel bad? Are they there so that God can say, you're not good enough, that God doesn't want us? No. Those passages are there for the exact opposite reason. They're there because Jesus sees the things that have us in bondage. He sees the things that make us turn away from him. This passage, this whole passage that we're looking at seems impossible to me. But we just heard Jesus say, what's impossible with man is possible with God because his grace is greater than my failure. Today's text is not just a warning. It's an invitation. Put this in your notes next to your fill-in where we put those three things that you have to love More, you have to love Jesus more than? Put this next to that. Guess what happens when you love Jesus more than your family? You learn to love your family like Jesus does. What happens when you love Jesus more than your own life? You discover a life of greater purpose in Christ and you get to see yourself through God's eyes instead of through the broken eyes of the world. You know what happens when you love Jesus more than comfort? You exchange temporary pleasure for divine peace. Jesus offers so much more than he ever asks from us. That's what the hope of this lesson is. Back to our text. Jesus has given us the lesson, now he illustrates the cost of discipleship with these two stories. The man building a tower and the man under attack. Starting in verse 28. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, this man started to build and one wasn't able to finish. Or, what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, for those of you who like history, like me, these two illustrations would have struck a chord with those who were standing there, because only a few years earlier, a poor and cheaply built amphitheater collapsed, causing 50,000 casualties. As for the war analogy, Herod Antipas had recently experienced a devastating and embarrassing defeat in a war caused by his own immoral choices. So the dishonor and consequences of moving forward on any task without integrity or planning would have been very clear to those people who were there. But both these illustrations warn us to count the cost of discipleship before following Jesus. He's basically saying, make sure you know what you're signing up for because following Jesus requires complete commitment complete commitment. He doesn't want you to make an emotional choice for him. He doesn't want you to make an off-the-cuff choice for him. That's now he, not how he wants you to follow him. But unless you're fully invested, your tower will collapse and your army will fall. You can't be partially committed to Christ. There's no halfway for the man in the story who has an army twice the size of his own marching against him. He's either all in or he has to surrender. So are you all in? One commentator said this, what Jesus asked for in this passage is extreme. He did not call for a makeover but demanded a takeover. So Jesus is saying, count the cost of that commitment. Now, we could spend hours breaking down and interpreting these two illustrations. That's what I had planned to do. But there's no service after this. I can just keep going. But we don't need to do that because Jesus tells us the main point he's trying to make in verse 33. In the same way, therefore... Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. So to be fully committed follower of Christ, the text says you must love Jesus more than possessions. You must love Jesus more than possessions. Possessions. So remember earlier when I told you that Jesus didn't really mean that we should hate our families the way we think of it, right? Remember I said that? Well, Jesus isn't really saying here that we should give up our stuff, is what I'd like to tell you. But that's exactly what he's saying. The Greek word that's used here for possessions is hipparko, and it means to be in existence or everything at your Disposal. And the Greek word used here for goodbye, you know what that means? It means goodbye. It's not always hard. So where we wrote, you must love Jesus more than your positions, you could write, surrender everything that exists in your life. We've been talking about the benefits of confession at Celebrate Recovery and the landing recently. Over the last couple weeks, so here's mine. I utterly fail or have been failing at this verse. I love stuff. My wife says I would be a hoarder if she wasn't around. My friend who doesn't want to make me feel bad calls me an archivist. I love old books, I love the smell of old books, I love gadgets. I love having my nana's diary. I love having a 100-year-old Shakespeare Bible calendar. I love having a fast computer with cool software. I love my iPhone. But the truth is that the only reason I like any of it is for one of three reasons. Either it makes me comfortable. We've already learned that's not good. Or to be honest, I think it makes me look cool in front of other people. Or I have an emotional or family attachment to the item. But all of those reasons are an affront to Christ. Everything we have belongs to him. We don't own anything. We're only temporary stewards of anything that passes through our hands. But we hold on to it so tightly, don't we? We just hold on to it. Did you know that less than 2% of church-going Christians, church-going Christians, less than 2% tithe? And many people will say, well, that's an Old Testament principle, tithing. Well, Jesus actually affirms the practice of tithing with the Pharisees in the New Testament, and people have different opinions on that, and that's fine. But here's one thing that we can all agree on. The people who say it's an Old Testament principle are right in one sense. Because most of the people who had a true experience with Jesus in the New Testament didn't tithe. They gave everything. The disciples, the early church in Acts, individuals who met Jesus and were transformed in an instant. Look at Zacchaeus. You guys know Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up. And we don't have time for the whole song. The point is, the more important point, is that he was a corrupt tax collector who got rich off the unfortunate. But when he encountered Jesus in one day, he said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And what's he going to do with the other half? And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now you may be thinking, I thought salvation was a free gift. This all sounds like I have to earn my salvation. Make sure you hear this. Nothing. Nothing I'm talking about today will buy your salvation. Nothing we can do is sufficient. Salvation comes from faith in Jesus Christ alone. He paid the price for our redemption fully and completely. Nothing else is necessary. Nothing else can be added. Look at the next verse in the Zacchaeus story. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, meaning he expressed the same faith as Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus says that Zacchaeus was saved because the Messiah came to seek and save the lost. And when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, he had faith. His charity was a result of his salvation. It was not the cause of his salvation. But here's the hard question. How can you experience God's presence in your life and not want to give him everything? How can you have a passive response to Jesus? And if you do, have you met him? Have you really met him? Zacchaeus' example of transformation leads us to number three in our outline. Following Jesus requires living a life of influence. Living a life of influence. Verse 34 in our text. Jesus closed out his teaching by saying this. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? Salty. It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Now, as we've moved through this study on the life of Jesus, I think that this is the third time that we've encountered this concept of being salty. On a Sunday morning, on just Sunday mornings alone. Why? At first, this almost doesn't seem to fit. It almost seems out of place, right? Why is Jesus talking about salt again? What does being like salt have to do with counting the cost of discipleship? How are they connected? It's there because that's the evidence of a true follower. It's the way that we test the fruit of our discipleship. Now, salt was known as a seasoning, but it was more widely used as a preservative. But either way, salt was known as a transforming agent. It had an effect on whatever it came into contact contact with. It changed the properties of what it was exposed to. So is your faith a changing agent in your family? How about in the workplace? How about in the ministry you serve in? Does your faith have an impact on your community? And I'm not talking about the things that you do, but who you've become in Christ. This isn't about tasks. It's about the influence your new character in Christ naturally has on those around you. Salt can't try to be salty. It's just salty. Look at what Psalm 112 says about those who find joy in fearing God and fully following God. They share freely and give generously to those in need. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. They will have influence, influence, and honor. And this is so interesting. I love this. The Hebrew word that's used here for influence, you know what it really means? It means horn or trumpet. Horns were used for making proclamations, horns were used for making announcements. So, what announcement is your life making? God has a purpose for your life. He has a direction for your life. He invites us to be part of the work that he is doing, but we can only have an impact for him when we fully surrender to him. Are you willing to turn away from those things that prevent you from truly following Jesus Christ? Because being on the fringe It's not enough. Not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Don't move yet, but when we wrap up in a few minutes... We'll have counselors and prayer partners that are down here to pray with you if you need someone to pray with you or anoint you with oil. We'll also have people in the care connection room. But before we close, before we get to that, I have a warning for you. Watch where your focus lies. As we look at the cost of following Jesus, there's something very, very important to keep in mind. I struggled with this passage. I struggled with it and I struggled with it and then I was reminded Our focus should never remain on the cost to us, but be forever focused on the cost that Jesus paid. We must understand the cost of discipleship, not for the sake of what we lose, but to put in greater focus what we gain. Look at our two illustrations. You don't count the cost of building a tower so that you stay forever obsessed with the cost. You count the cost of building it to ensure that you end up with a tower. You don't count the cost of a war for the sake of a bank statement. You count the cost of a war to be sure that you can win the battle and that you get to come home. Jesus is not about loss. Jesus is about life. He only wants us to lose the things that prevent us from seeing the greater purpose he has inside a real, true relationship with him. He wants us to be set free from the things that keep us in chains, even the ones we think we like. In Matthew 19... Jesus is talking to the disciples about this very subject, about what it means to be a follower of him. And Peter says, oh, Peter. Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? It's a pretty gutsy question, Pete. But don't we kind of ask the same question? But Jesus gave him an answer. Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, he was speaking to the disciples specifically there, but then he continues. And everyone, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or property for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But he wants that relationship with you now. He wants that kind of committed relationship with you now because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So what's the cost of following Jesus? Jesus. The cost of discipleship is everything. But the cost of not following Jesus is so much more. Father God, transform us, change our hearts, in a way that we thought was impossible. Remove the veil from our eyes. Remove the pride from our hearts. And allow us to be drawn closer to you, Lord. We don't want to be on the fringe. We want to hear you call our name. We ask this in the name of Christ, our King and Savior. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. You can learn more about our church by visiting our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or by checking out our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening, and have a blessed week.